Hi, everyone. Welcome to Your New Life Blend. I'm Shoshana Hecht, your host, and I'm so excited to be joined today by my pal, go-to market expert and lawyer, Bina Shaw. With a deep interest in how we grow the right industries and teams, Beanish has grown companies and teams three to four X and taken techs, consumer packaged goods, beauty and fashion products to market internationally. Excitingly, her book on identifying and navigating toxic workplaces, which feels so necessary and helpful, is due out this spring. And I'm pretty excited that Beanish is here to talk about this and how the last few years have shaped her thinking on work and life. Beanish, welcome to your new life blend. Thank you. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Me too. It's so great to see you and hear you. I think you're in Texas, right? I am in Texas, which is something that I still have trouble saying. When someone says like, where are you? I feel the need to be like, well, I'm in Texas right now, but I'm actually from New York and D.C. I'm a New Yorker. I'm a New Yorker. I moved to Dallas two and a half years ago during COVID because my sister-in-law and brother were having a baby and it was my first niece. And I was afraid that I wasn't going to get to see her because I didn't know how long COVID would last. And and the plan was to be here for two years, but it turns out that I'm completely in love with her. And why would I give up the chance to see her grow up? That's crazy. Talk about designing your life with intention and putting what matters most to you at the time. For you, for right now, that's what matters, right? Every non-working moment I spend with her. And now I have a second baby, so I spend it with her and my sister's daughter visits all the time. It's nice. I get to see my nieces grow up, which I didn't think I was going to have a chance to do. Congratulations to all of you. That's so fun that they get to have you around them. It's amazing. There's so much wrapped up in there, like moving, identifying as a New Yorker and a DC person and work and life. Work has changed a lot for you in the last, not just year, but last few years. And I imagine this has prompted the book driver. So which direction do you want to go first? Do you want to talk about changing your life as a result of a pandemic? It's evolution of the personal side of it and how the work has woven into that. I think a big piece that came out of the pandemic was it forced all of us to pause. And we've heard people say that, but I think that the pause was not just in the we're stuck at home perspective, but it was a perspective of, do I really need to be living my life the way I've been living it? For me in New York, it was double booked every single night, had work events to go to, had networking things to go to. I had to see my friends, I had to see everybody. And it was wonderful. But then when I left it, I stopped and was like, oh, it's so nice to be able to just keep in touch with friends and have deeper conversations and not network, quote unquote, all the time. And the best relationships I have are deep relationships. They're not the surface level ones. Those are the ones that you're taught to make, but they don't really do anything for you and you don't do anything for them. The biggest change for me was seeing how life could be different and different could be amazing. And I did not see that coming. None of us did. None of us thought that it could be different. I will say it was wonderful. I did love being able to just meet for dinner and have deep conversations <laughs> with you in person. <laughs> I did love that and do miss it. But that's right. It's very eye-opening in terms of how we didn't even have the time to stop and think about what could be different yeah. for us. And I think that and the work thing that applies to me in work also. I'm an attorney, I'm a market expert. I have built a career on working in nascent industries, which tend to be industries that are a little crazy because they're new and things haven't been figured out yet. And I've spent so much time proving to myself and to those around me that I can do X thing or that I can work in X industry. What I netted out in the last few years is what do I get out of this? Outside of a really cool thing on my resume, I can walk into a room and be like, I was able to grow a company three to four X 
six times. But I look back to my version of me when I was 21, 26 and graduating law school and thinking about what I wanted to do with my life and what impact do I want to make and wasn't doing any of those things in an active way. I did them on the side. Like I take on nonprofit clients every year and I work with them at a reduced rate. I take on advisory clients, all of those things. But in a real way, I was actually making the world worse rather than making it better. It's a weird statement, right? It's not a weird statement. It's a deep statement, a powerful statement. It's a vulnerable statement. And it is a statement that I want to hear more about. I think to me what that means is if you're not doing active work to make the world a better place, you're doing the opposite. And we could tell ourselves we're not. We could tell ourselves, I have to pay my bills. I have to do X thing and I have to do this. And of course, we do have to do those things. I have a child of an immigrant. We have to pay our bills. But I think there is a part of us that we lull into thinking we don't have to do anything more. And if we're really talking about designing our life, when you have that realization, what are the steps you're going to take to start being able to give yourself the opportunity to do more or to do better? For me, that came down to, okay, I have to save. I have to save money. I have to save resources. I have to do all of those things so that when I make the decision to go and do something different, I can take that risk. It's really easy to tell people to quit their job. Super easy. You can be like, go if you have a dream, go quit, go quit your job, go follow it. The reality is you can only do that if you have either generational wealth or if you planned for it enough that you can take that risk for a few months, a few years, or however you want to plan that out. I intuitively knew that's something I wanted to do. So I was just smart and I saved for it. I think that's a really important distinction that you just made. It is a privilege to be able to say, just work harder, just side hustle, just grind it out until you doesn't take into consideration the very real constraints that people have in their lives. I think that's also what you're saying about the idea of the obligation to do better and be better also comes from a place of, I don't want to say privilege. No, it does. I was actually just having a conversation with a friend right before this about the idea that I look at myself as somebody who is an immigrant, has all of the challenges of being a Muslim Baksani female. But the thing that I often forget to tell myself is that I also have privilege. I went to a private university. Privilege has entered the room. I went to a top law school. Privilege has entered the room. My life from before then and after then is a mix of both privilege and challenges. And I have to be able to look at it like that. And saying that I want to make the world a better place and taking the opportunity to do that, it comes from a place of privilege. Now, I may have worked hard to get the privilege, but it's still privilege. I can't say that to somebody who didn't have the same opportunities as I did, because they may not have the same environment to be able to take that risk. So when you're saying the point about making the world a better place, that if we're not actively doing that, it assumes that you're coming at it from that place where you have more optionality around yes. it? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Because I think you can make the world a better place in different ways. There's people who make the world a better place because they walk down the street and they smile at someone who hasn't had that happen to them in the longest time. That is making the world a better place. There are some people who at different stages of their career just have a little bit more access. They have a little bit more capability based on just experience that they can take into the world in a different capacity. My career is built on taking something that the world may not understand or know about and helping them understand it and helping them want it. What happens if I take that and I take that into messaging for nonprofits? Or what happens if I take that into messaging for civil engagement? How do I take that and make it accessible to other people? 
I have optionality to be able to do that. And it's now a decision that I had to make. Will I take that option or will I continue on a path that isn't particularly making me happy and making me feel like I'm not doing good in the world? Talk to me about that evolution because this has been a journey for you. Yeah, it wasn't as linear as it can be for some people. Honestly, none of my career is linear and it just erupts into that reality of my life. I knew a few years ago that I no longer wanted to make money for people that I didn't believe in. And that's what go-to-market is. You make money for people. You help them make money. And I knew that I was becoming complacent in the fact that I was an exec in the tech world that was getting paid a certain amount of money. And I was starting to spend on things that didn't make sense to me. Like I genuinely remember standing somewhere and being like, why am I buying this thing at this price? I would never buy this thing at this price. But you become accustomed to that world. This is normal. What is it you hear people say? Capitalism is a hell of a drug? Oh, it absolutely is a hell of a drug. And then what I think that does for a personality like mine, complacency is not healthy. And challenging a personality like mine is not necessarily, here's a new goal or here's a new thing. Giving me a challenge is saying, here's a complex problem, we need to solve it. But it has to be complex. And what I was finding was that more and more, the problems I was being given didn't feel complex to me. They felt like people were complicating them. And so where I see complexity now is I see complexity in the world that we're living in, in terms of wired people talking about real things. I'm seeing complexity in why do we suddenly have this surge of toxic workplaces. I'm an attorney. I grew up in a really hard profession, but it never felt toxic to me, even though it was a very difficult profession. And I started to look at all of these problems and starting to think about how do I help solve them? Or how do I help create tools for people to solve them? Which is where the book came up, honestly. Surge of toxic workplaces. Like it's more than ever? Because when I hear surge, I'm like, oh, it's a bigger? I think so. I think it's a bigger problem. And the way that I differentiate it is a hard workplace is like the finance, the meds, the law of the world where you know what you're walking into. You know, they're clear about it. They don't pretend to be something they're not. They're telling you that your life is going to be really difficult and we're going to make it really difficult. And this is a choice you're making and you're choosing to go into that. And I think that creates a difficult workplace, a very difficult one. Again, not talking about the lawsuits that come out of there. I'm just talking about like, you know, you're going to work long hours. You know, you're going to be held to a really high standard of work. You know those things. And you also know that you are going to get compensated. Exactly. There's risk reward. Absolutely. It's like eyes open choice. I think on the other side of it, what we've seen happen in the last decade, especially is you have these workplaces that are coming up and they're telling you we're equal, we're diverse. We want you to bring your full self to work. We're all of these great things. And then you bring your full self to work and then you're punished for it. You're told there's unlimited time off. And if you take it, you're punished for it. You're told that we believe in diversity, but then if you bring diversity to the table or you talk about what's happening, you're punished for it. I think that is really what we're seeing when we're talking about a toxic workplace because it's similar to a narcissistic personality in a relationship, which is they build you up, they build you up, and then they tear you down. And I think that's what these workplaces have started to do, which is they know all the right things to say. They know all the right things to do. And what they're actually doing is they're creating a version of what looks like a great workplace, but then it's actually much worse because you're getting paid less, you're being gaslit, because you're like, I was told to bring myself to work and now I'm being punished for it. And you're not given the opportunity to grow because it's a cycle of just how do you get out of this? There's been a ton of articles and conversations around toxic workplaces. But if we have them, if we're living in them, we need to teach people or give them the tools to be able to identify them and figure out how they're going to either navigate them or get out of them. My mind is racing. Okay, so there's a talk. People are not walking the talk. And that has exploded since May of 2020 where we 
really started to see businesses putting out their value statements and hiring, pouring money into DEI, trainings, et cetera, et cetera. And what I hear you saying is that that's all BS? I think it's worse than BS, honestly, because it's very performative. I mean, it's the sense of like, okay, I'm walking into a place that I think is going to value the fact that I'm a brown female because they're telling me they're going to value it. And then what ends up happening is when I get there and I act like a brown female, I'm told the same tropes everyone's told. Ooh, there's a communication issue here. Ooh, I think you're being a little harsh. Or, oh, maybe you should change the way that you speak. So the behaviors haven't changed. I was going to say, this is stuff you and I have talked about before in past workplaces. Yes. The behaviors have not changed. Everyone's just learned the language to make themselves not look bad. We have checklists. We've done the DEI training. We've done the sexual harassment training. We have said the right words. We have brought in the right people. I am like, okay, do the right people last? Do they stay? When you talk about diversity, how much diversity do you really have? And are those people staying? Are those people being promoted? Are those people being given opportunities? And if they're not, what's going on there? The same thing with gender. What's going on there? We live in a culture of NDAs. Why are you having people sign NDAs? We're seeing more and more of that across the board because we've normalized it. We've normalized a conversation of, oh, yes, come work for us. We care so much about X thing. We're mission driven. And you get there and the mission <laughs> mission they give you, like, we really care about women in the workplace, but don't ask for a raise. And you're like, well, that's contradictory. That is creating an entire workforce that is burnt out because you don't know what to believe. You have no idea. I think that's hard. I think it's going to we're going to see a correction. I just don't know when. Hard feels like an understatement. The word you might use is toxic. Maybe. Maybe the word you'd use is toxic. So all of this makes a lot of sense. Like you say, not linear at all, a journey. And you point to your niece as the driver. And I also wonder if a lot of these experiences at work and of course the pandemic lit a fire under you. Well, not just the pandemic or personal life. What the pandemic did was it created this world of text message threads of people trying to get support, multiple ones that you were on. And I saw the same pattern in every single one of them when it came to work. Everybody was going through the same issues. And the first question somebody would ask would be, do I sound crazy or or is this X? Or you guys, am I overreacting or is this X? And it was the same pattern across the board, no matter where people were. And I found that those messages most often came from places that were mission-driven, that were new tech. People at large law firms who are impressed with never sent that out. They were just like, this is my life. My investment banker friends were like, this is my life. I know what this is. They knew what they were getting into, but there is something about new tech that's supposed to be scrappy and the new way of doing business. And it's just mixed messages or hidden messages or gaslighting messages about the way we're doing business. Look, toxic workplaces are not going to go away. If you walk in with your eyes open and you know what you're walking into, you're going to have a healthier life than if you go in believing the stuff you're being told. Beanish Shah, defender against toxic workplaces. What's your vision for how we do better or how we know better? I think it's knowing better because as somebody who's walking into a company anywhere, you want to know what you're walking into. It's different if you're walking in as an exec. It's different if you're walking in as somebody who's earlier in their career. You just have more optionality when you're an exec. The risk and reward is high. I think as an exec, you walk in and you say, I want to know who was in my position before. I want to be able to talk to them. I want to gauge what that was like. It's interesting to me that very few of us do that. We never really stop and be like, who was in this position before? Why did they leave? What happened there? And not just ask your employer that. Go ask that person. Go ask the other people who have held that job before. What's actually happening here? And then go in with your eyes open. But it assumes that they haven't signed, like you said before, an NDA or that they actually can talk to you. I think at an executive level, you're smart enough to be able to tell if someone's not giving you any answers. There's, uh, yes. there's a piece of paper somewhere they're not supposed to talk about. But do your research. Know what's going to happen. For women, especially women of color, there's this idea that they call the broken chair syndrome. 
you're given a seat at the table, but your chair is broken. Everyone has a nice chair that's functioning. Your chair is broken. And what you're doing is trying to keep your chair from breaking apart, putting tape around it so that you have his chair to sit at at the table while you're also trying to do your job. And then everyone's mad at you because the chair is broken. Because you were given a broken chair and you're not making it work. Exactly. Sure, we have a seat at the table, but is it an equal seat? It's not. Is there equity there? There isn't. But if you know that, if you can be aware of that, will that change the way that you approach something? So it's the thinking that if enough people become aware of it and engage with work and the future of their work differently, we'll have more systemic change. Like, how do we? Yeah. If the idea is like, okay, look, if I know I'm walking into a toxic workplace, I go and be like, okay, this is not a long-term career decision. This is a, I'm here for two to three years. I think employers often rely on the fact that they're doing you a favor by hiring you. They're like, oh, we're paying you to do this thing. And you're like, cool, you are. You're paying me to do my job. I will do my job. Trade time for money. Absolutely, yes. I don't need to be friends with everybody outside of work. They don't need to know about my personal life. They don't need to know about any of these things because guess what? In six months, two months, four days, a year, they can let you go and they will not think twice about it. So you have to make decisions in your life knowing that and being comfortable with it. I said a blasé before trade time for money, but we do spend a ton of time at work. We yeah. spend a lot of our time at work. And so what I hear you saying is how do we help people be more mindful about the choices they're making about where they're going to invest that time and energy? Yeah, I think it's the idea of helping people, yes, trade time for money, which really means know the value you're getting out of it. Be intentional. The value is if you go work in a startup and they're like, oh, we're going to give you this really low salary, but you're getting a lot of equity. And you're like, that's really nice. I would like the cash. Equity is on top of that. But I need cash because I don't know if my equity is going to invest. I don't know if my equity is going to come out to be anything. Why am I taking this risk with you? Give me a reason to take this risk with you. I think that we've become really obsessed with startup culture in a way that we're like, no, 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 take the risk. And it's like, no, actually take a measured risk. I know what you're walking into. It's the same way if you're going to work at a company that you know is notorious for laying everybody off in November. Then you walk in and you say, okay, I need to vote on the severance package. How do I negotiate a severance package? These are all things that are actually not taught to anybody. How do I do it if I'm going to walk into a company that has a four arbitration clause in the contract. Okay, I'm not going to be able to negotiate it out because if I'm going to work at a Fortune 500 company, they're not going to change that contract. But I know what this is. I need to understand what forced arbitration clause is. So if God forbid I ever need to use it, I'm prepared for it. I think that we've lulled people into the sense of comfort with these companies that are saying they're so great. But I think what we need to do is say, this is still a workplace. You're walking into a workplace. This is a contract between person one and company one. And we need to make sure that you're covering yourself just as much as the company's covering themselves so that you can make informed decisions to have a successful career. All of which is underscored by what matters most to us, our values, our yes. drivers. I think that's what I mean by eyes wide open, right? Let me make sure that it allows with what you want to do and live. Sometimes when we're early in our career, we don't get to make those choices. We don't have the privilege to make those choices. I think it's helpful at that point just to know what you're walking into so that you can honestly psychologically protect yourself and you don't feel gaslit every single day. As you go further up in your career and suddenly you have options, you can say what aligns with my values and my needs. And if the thing aligns with my value and my needs, I can make a decision to go work there for a certain amount of time or for a long amount of time or whatever you want. We want people to start being able to make those decisions 
decisions rather than being forced into those decisions. And I think the world we live in pushes us into this cycle of not being able to stop and think about this because we're like, we have bills to pay. We have this to do. We don't have a job tomorrow. Our career is going to crash and burn. How are we going to do this? And I think we have told this entire cycle to people so many times that everything is about being fearful. That is, I make a decision that isn't the decision in front of me. I'm not going to have anything. This is about helping people come out of that and say, eyes open, find your values, see if it aligns. Maybe you need to do this for a little while to get to the thing that aligns and that's okay. But know what you're getting into. That's really interesting. Who's the message for? Is it for executives? Is it for leaders? Is it for founders? Because the message for new career people is eyes wide open, know what you're getting, understand the terms and that terms are terms and it's just information and it's a container and a framework and it's good for you to know it. And also woven in there, work is not your family. Never will be. Right. I think the way the book's being structured, there is a strategy for if you're earlier in your career versus if you're an exec. You have a lot more negotiating power if you're going in as an exec less if you're going in early. The problems you face, the tropes you face are very similar. Can you identify the trope and how do you navigate that trope? In almost all scenarios of toxic workplaces, the answer is going to be you're going to have to quit and find a new job because unless the problematic parts of that company or that environment leave, which is rare, you're going to always have to do that. You're going to always have to leave. Is that surprising considering most people who work in tech, especially startups, end up staying at a place for one, maybe two, maximum three, four years? Everybody knows that cycle is there, but it's about being aware of that cycle and using it to your advantage when you can. That statement always makes me a little bit enraged because it is such a point of privilege like, oh, if you're getting harassed at work, just quit. Just leave. Just find another job. That's just not the world necessarily. And honestly, okay, sure, you're going to do that here and you're going to go to the next place and they're going to behave in the same way. It doesn't solve anything. Part of this is we've been taught not to quit. We've been taught we can't quit, but we can. It's a strategy, right? You have to figure out how you're going to quit. We make plans. It takes us back to the beginning. You said, I knew that I wanted a big change and you took steps to change your life. And you also said what I needed to do was save for this future where I could take a leave to write a book. And I'm working on a nonprofit because I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to make a bigger change. From a value perspective, what mattered to me was I know that if I function best when I don't have to worry about money for X number of time, it's important to me. Some people are okay without that and they can take a risk in a different way. I can't. I just have been, I've been raised in an environment where I cannot do that. And so I was like, okay, this is the thing that's going to be really important to me. And so I need to make sure this part of my life is covered so that I can do the thing that's important to me. For other people, they need to make sure their resume is safe. For some people, it's I need to make sure that I stay in one particular location. Everybody has a different driver and a different level of risk. And I think it's important to stop and say, what's my driver? What's my level of risk? What happens if I fail at this thing? And find that worst possible outcome and say, okay, I'm comfortable with that. And if you're not comfortable with it, that's okay. You don't have to do that right now. I was not comfortable five years ago. It took years to become comfortable. And now I'm like, oh, now I can try something else. You're right. You could never have gotten there if you didn't get connected to that driver, which are your values in my mind. What matters most and how do you design your life around that blend, your new life blend? <laughs> That's what's your new life blend. Honestly, I think even when you and I talked a year ago, I was still in the best of this of it. Okay, I think I know where I want to go. I know these are my values. I kind of like it. The difference that's happened is that I got comfortable with my values. I got comfortable with my needs. I got comfortable with the risk I wanted to take. And that took some time. And then once I felt comfortable, I was like, I can do this. I can now go and do this. 
I think that makes you normal, right? When we step up to the edge of our vulnerability, we can be riddled with fear. And all that says is, oh, we're embarking on something scary. That makes sense because it is fraught. How do we design the journey so that we can do it in a way that feels safe and intact for us, but also that we really continue to step forward? It's funny because you and I have talked about vulnerability so many times before. I am one of those people where I don't quite understand vulnerability. I genuinely don't understand it because I say the things that are in my head. I am very transparent. So I don't like when people talk about vulnerability, I don't quite get it. This is the first time I truly understood it because I was like, oh, I actually have to take the thing that's going to scare me the most and see if I can do it. That's scary. Growing a company doesn't scare me. Somebody asked me a few months ago, what's the thing that keeps you up at night? And I'm like, nothing. It doesn't. Like, I know how to do my work. I know how to do my job. I can be working at tiny startup with zero budget, big startup with millions of dollars. And my work, I understand it. So that will not keep me up at night. I was like, this will. Working on the things that I want to figure out will keep me up at night. And that's very scary. I love that you piece that together because I know you personally. I know that you are not the best sleeper on the planet. So now that you're identifying what it is that keeps you up, it's going to be like rocket fuel for you. The best part is since I figured this out, I've been sleeping incredibly well. Incredibly well. I am on the precipice, excited to watch you soar and support your book. I'm extremely excited for all the people that this is going to help and the light that this is going to shine on where we're at with work. And of course, these things come out of our personal experiences. And so I am sorry that you have endured tough workplaces and life experiences. It's a cost that you're going to share. I will say that in a 15-year career of being a Muslim female, I have still gotten a lot luckier than most people have which is a terrifying thought. Part of it is because I never fell for the idea that my work is my family. And so I've genuinely kept a separation everywhere I've been. I look at my career of 15 years, I got lucky. I got very lucky. Even though I've had some really insane things happen, I still got very lucky compared to other people. And fortune favors the prepared. You've worked hard for everything too. I'm excited for you to share it all with us. Nish, where can we follow you, learn more about your wisdom? My handle is the same everywhere. It's Nish. <laughs> Surprising, nobody else had that name. Twitter, Instagram will be where I probably talk about the book once it's in a place where I can start to talk about it. It is coming out in the spring and it's going to be on Amazon and all the normal places. Do you want to hear the name of it? Because I think it's funny. Of course. I'm calling it, am I the problem? How to navigate and identify a toxic workplace? Because I think that in all of those cases, the answer is going to be, yeah, you are the problem. It's just not the reason you think it is. I'm into it. I'm into it. And of course, we'll link to it when you're ready for all your pre-orders and all that jazz. So keep us posted. Thank you so much for being here. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. So thanks for being on the show. And thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been your new life blend. I'm Shoshana Heck reminding you, as ever, to be gentle with yourself. <laughs>